Well, good morning, Waterford. Uh, it is... It has been with great anticipation that my family has looked forward to being able to worship with you. Uh, we are so excited at the beginning of the year to have joined the Summit family and uh, so excited that I get an opportunity to come out and meet you. I've uh, talked to Gary a lot. He loves you guys. I actually knew Sam as well. He has always spoken so highly of what God has done through Waterford and uh, just with great anticipation of what uh, the foundation is, looking forward to a great future out here. So we're excited to be a part of it with you. Look forward to being a part of the journey going forward. John mentioned we got to know his family a little bit over the summer and into the fall last year when we actually moved in the neighborhood really close to where they're at. And I got to tell you about our first uh, encounter together. That was the first time we got to experience Summit. We got to connect with the Summit family by getting to get, connect with the Parker family. They were so gracious to this new family moving into the neighborhood. Said, why don't you come over for dinner? And so we got over there and met their kids. Brandy was just, if you know their family, they're just so hospitable, so welcoming. And we got over there, our kids hanging out with their kids, had a wonderful meal. And then afterwards, our family likes to play games when we go over to people's house. So we brought apples to apples. Anybody ever play apples to apples? Yeah, our kids are nuts about it. We got it out, went and sat in the living room, started getting ready to play. And John, he was so kind. He said, hey, come on over here. I want to show you this chair. It was a chair that he had, it's handmade from Africa. Uh, maybe some of you have been on one of the trips to Africa. It's a big deal here at Summit with our partnerships on one of the trips, one of these handmade chairs. I'm like, that is so cool. It's unique. Have a seat in it while we're playing. I'm like, oh, all right, that's, a, that's gracious. All right. So I sit in the chair, settling on in. Couldn't have been two minutes later. My nine-year-old son, Garrett, comes bouncing into the room, jumps onto my lap, and I'm talking a split second later. I hear this crack, kaboom. And my feet are on the ceiling, my back is on the floor, and I mean, when you're looking for making a good first impression on new friends, that's what you want to do, isn't it? That was so awesome. Uh, by the way, if you have been trying to nag your spouse about getting new furniture at the house and have been unsuccessful, just, we'd be happy to come over for dinner anytime you'd invite us. We would love the opportunity. Now, we really found ourselves just loving the Parker family as a result of all that time, as well as the grace in that situation. But uh, one of the things that we've recognized, and I'm sure you have at different times as well, is you can learn a great deal about uh, the character and the, just the vibe, the heartbeat of an organization, particularly a church, by its leaders. Spend some time around the leaders and you'll start to know what really makes this organization beat fast called the church here. And the more we spent time with John and Brandy and their kids, uh, the more we found ourselves really excited about what God's doing at Summit. They represent you well. Uh, they represent Jesus well, and we're so excited to serve alongside and serve under his leadership, and really, my family is just full of anticipation uh, by what God has for us ahead together as we journey, so it's awesome. Let me, in fact, let me give you a picture of my family real quick, speaking of them. Jim Keller, every time he teaches, he throws a picture up of his grandkids, doesn't he? So I figure I can show a picture of my family. Uh, in the middle there, my beautiful bride, uh, Leslie, we are going to celebrate 23 years of marriage this summer. I uh, got married when I was eight, and she was nine. Um, <laughs> At least it feels like it. We've known each other forever and absolutely love it. Uh, our 16-year-old daughter, Lauren, in the picture there. Uh, Lauren is just full of joy, full of beauty, full of life. We just, uh, just adore her. And then Garrett, our 9-year-old, chair-breaking uh, son there uh, in the middle. If you're a Star Wars fan, the force is strong in this one. Uh, he is a huge Star Wars guy, um, creative, curious about life. We just, just love our kids and, and love our family. And again, we're, we're so excited that our family is knitting into your family here at Summit as well. Uh, tell you a couple other things maybe about us. It might be helpful to know. Uh, me personally, um, I grew up in the Midwest. My mom and dad live about a mile and a half from Notre Dame. I'm a huge Notre Dame football fan. Uh, in fact, in our home, man, we don't use language like, you know, Gators and Seminoles and Crimson Tide and, 
even knights and stuff like that. In fact, I feel like I should apologize for using such filthy language like that up here on the platform. I'm sorry for that. Uh, we are huge Fighting Irish fans. Absolutely love cheering on uh, the football team. Uh, and another thing that's helpful to know, I'm a, my dad's a minister. My dad's been a pastor since I was like preschool age, a couple churches in the Midwest, still is a pastor today. Uh, that is a unique experience. Um, I grew up just blessed. What a gift to grow up in a home of faith and integrity. But it doesn't come without its unique experiences. I can tell you that. I remember one time when I was 10 years old, my, uh, my dad was a pastor in Bloomington, Indiana, uh, where Indiana University is. Uh, men's basketball team is kind of known as uh, one of those big championship, usually year after year kind of teams uh, in the running for something. In fact, they just hired a new head coach yesterday, I heard, so a lot, lot happening in Bloomington. But at the time, when I was there as a 10-year-old, they had just won the Big Ten Championship in men's basketball. There. Everybody's excited, hitting the local stores to get some memorabilia about it. We went to JCPenney that afternoon at the mall in town, and there was a whole big section there of, uh, you know, pennants and pins and all kinds of different things you could get memorabilia. I made my way over there, and I had a pin that caught my eye, and I decided I really wanted it. I didn't have any money, but I was able, not my finest moment in life, mind you, but I got the pin, stuck it in, a little celebration championship pin, stuck it in my pocket. And I made the fatal mistake, however, of leaving the said pen with its price tag and everything on in the laundry that week, only for my mom to find it later that week when she was doing laundry. Well, when she finds it, I'm moments away from having a very awkward conversation with my parents. A few minutes after that, my dad is on the phone to the security department at JCPenney's. Yeah, uh, yes, gentlemen, my son is a criminal. He is stolen from your store. We're going to be down in just a few minutes. We are in the car, head down, met by two security guards. They kind of give me the runaround as a 10-year-old. You know not to do that. There's cameras everywhere, all that. Uh, well, thank you for bringing back the merchandise, Mr. Bell. Son, I hope you learned your lesson. You shouldn't be doing this. My dad wasn't done, though. They were ready to let us go, and he's like, hang on a second. Um, surely, should we not be calling the authorities? Should we not be calling the police on this? I'm trying to remember, is it one night in jail or two nights in jail for this kind of a first offense? And I mean, I, my eyes are bugging out of my head, and I'm not kidding, by the time it was over, uh, I think the security guards were feeling bad for me and afraid for me on behalf of my dad. But it was experiences like that, growing up in a home of integrity, that really began to shape you. I began to understand there is right and there is wrong. And when something is wrong, we do everything we can to fix it. When something is broken, we want to do what we can in our power to make it whole again. And in a word, that's called justice. That's what justice is all about, is taking something that we see that's, that's not as it should be and restoring it to its proper place, what it should be, making it whole again. You grow up in a home like that, and it'll have an impact on you. It shaped my life in some areas. I remember when I was a sophomore in high school, I had a friend named Brian, and Brian, what made him different was his special needs. He, what made him unique also uh, resulted him, in him often being the, um, the, the short end of ridicule and being made fun of repeatedly. And it meant when you'd see something like that, it would just brew an angst in me, something the passion would kind of flare up. And many times I'd come to defense of my friend Brian, and, and as, as is often the case when we come uh, to defend the injustices that others face, we pay a price ourselves sometimes, and that was part of my journey. I remember when I was in college, I came home for the summer, and I was working at a manufacturing plant, and God gave me an opportunity to meet a guy named Richard. Um, Richard was not a follower of God, had never really been in church much ever since his childhood. But I was, at that time, going to Bible college, learning uh, seminary, learning how to uh, prepare for the ministry, being a pastor. And, and so he was asking me about it, and I, he became very interested in the things of Jesus. And so he finally asked me, he said, hey, can, I, can I go to church with you this weekend? I'd, I'd love to go. I haven't been since I was a little kid. I'm absolutely. Here's what you need to know about Richard, though. Uh, Richard was black. He was African-American. 
And the church I was a part of up in northern Indiana at the time, we're talking there was no African-Americans, there was no Hispanic, there was no Asian. We were just a bunch of pasty white Midwestern folk. And I'm like, absolutely, man, come to church with me. So I pick up Richard that Sunday morning. He's got a surprise for me. He's got three more of his African-American friends. And I'm like just so excited to bring them to church, my new friends. I can take you to where the pew was in this sanctuary that it's me, Richard, and my new three friends sitting next to him where we worship together. And were we invited to worship? Absolutely. But not without prejudice. I mean, it's like it gets seared into your brain when you see the looks on people's faces. Um, for him and his friends, but for me as well. And I remember just, man, this is wrong. Something just begins to stir inside you that says there is something wrong and it needs to be made right. There's an injustice here that is broken, and we are supposed to be about making this right. Injustice is all around us. No doubt you've seen it, and many of you maybe in your lifetime have experienced it. Um, when you came in, when you've been uh, looking on the screen, I wonder, have, have any of you noticed that there is something wrong on the screen today? Anybody catch that? What's, on, what's wrong on the screen? It's, there's, a t there's a typo up there. Have you seen it? The word people is not quite spelled that way. And there's probably a few of you, especially if you're like school teacher type or really detail-oriented person, they're just like kind of twitching and itching out there. Like, I can't even hear what the guy's saying. Somebody fix that. And that's the way it can be. I, I, I watch a, like a talking head on the news when these guys will be talking. They get the little ticker going on the bottom. It's happened a few times that there's a typo. I don't care what he or she was talking about. All I can see is that typo. And I'm waiting for it to come back around. Please fix that. Please fix that. When we see that, it just rakes against us. Even if everything else is right, even if everything's going good, when we see something that isn't as it should be, we know it needs to be fixed. And we gotta do something to fix it, don't we? So if he hasn't fixed it yet, let's go ahead and fix that so you hear the rest of the message. Um, but that's, that's, um, that's a thing. It's the injustice that rears up in, inside of us. And in fact, this morning, whether you claim to be a follower of Jesus or not, when you feel that just rearing up inside of you, that's actually a reflection of God. God's heart beats fast for justice, for wrongs to be made right, for things that are broken to be whole again. It's really the primary message of scripture. It's everywhere on virtually every page that God wants to restore what it was broken and make it new, make it whole again. And that is uh, really present in the passage that we've been looking at in this series. And so if you have a Bible, I wanna encourage you to look at Luke chapter four with me. If you don't have a Bible, it's on the back of the bulletin today and you can follow right along. But we wanna look at these verses once again, that Jesus, it's uh, many theologians believe his coming out party, his inaugural address, where this is the heartbeat of Jesus, the mission, what he was all about and what he came to earth for and what he came to represent. So we'll be in uh, Luke chapter four and beginning in verse 16. Read along with me. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed over to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down preparing to preach. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
This is a very familiar passage to the people of Israel. And if, if you're like me, sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll look at and you'll say, what, Nazareth, Jesus is preaching in Nazareth. And, and what, what is it about that city? Is that important? Well, it's where he had grown up. But you might wonder, is it a big city? Was it a metropolis and millions of people? Surprisingly enough, even though it has significant pro prominence in the New Testament, Nazareth is talked about a lot, it was only a small village at the time of Jesus that we believe had about maybe 400 people in this little village. In other words, the entire village of Nazareth that we hear so much about during Jesus' time could have fit in this room together. And we think about that. In a time period in history where people didn't move around a lot, they tended to stay in the same villages or cities where they grew up in, a lot of these people would have known who Jesus was. Many of them would have grown up with him. Some of them childhood friends. Maybe when they were little boys and little girls running around with childhood Jesus, they'd play hide and seek with him. Can, can you imagine how frustrating that would be? He would always know where you were hiding. What, a, what an annoyance that would be. Or you'd go and say, I know he's hiding in there, and he'd go in and he'd be gone. That's not fair. How does he do this? But they knew Jesus from childhood. Many of these children now growing up being moms and dads of young kids of their own, and Jesus, their childhood friend, is coming back to town. Scriptures tell us that Jesus and his father Joseph were carpenters. It could be that people sitting in here hearing Jesus say these words have a piece of furniture, a table, chairs, or something in their home that Jesus and his father Joseph had made. And just a sidebar, if Jesus would have made the chair, I'm confident it would not have broken. So just keep that in mind. These people knew who Jesus was. They had grown up with him, and Jesus had gone out, started preaching. Scriptures tells us he's doing signs and wonders, incredible things. And man, their boy is coming home. There's got to be some excitement. There's some intrigue. Who is this carpenter's son? Who is he? What does he do? We played with him as a kid. What's he going to say this weekend? You don't want to be late to church this weekend. Jesus is going to be here, and he's going to have something interesting to say. Sure enough, he's given the scroll, reads from Isaiah 61. This is a very familiar, very meaningful passage to them. They would have nodded, oh, we know what he's reading. This was referring to what's called the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee, or as Jesus calls it in here, the year of the favor of our Lord. What is the year of Jubilee? Well, it's quoting from Isaiah 61, which was actually a direct quote from Leviticus, the old law, Leviticus 25. The year of Jubilee, listen to the beauty of this. The year of Jubilee, the whole year the land was to rest. No farming, no agricultural work. It was symbolic of, of a Sabbath, of a rest season. In addition, all things were made new. Debts that had accrued, were, were wiped out. Debts were forgiven completely. Wouldn't that be nice, uh, even in our day and age? Um, land that had been taken or seized because you couldn't pay your own bills so they would seize your property, the land would be returned to its original owner, restored to where it should be. Um, even those, if you don't have any money, you don't have any land to pay off your bills, what's the next thing? You, you become a slave. You serve off as an indentured servant to pay the bills. All slaves, all indentured servants were set free. Even all typos were fixed. I mean, everything was set as it should be. It was made right. It was restored as new. This was the year of Jubilee, and they loved this passage. Generation after generation, they would pass it on. And Jesus puts a twist, a huge crescendo on the end of this. He says, all these things that you're familiar with, that your mom, your dad, generation after generation have passed on, they're talking about me. All of these things, sight for the blind, freedom for the prisoner, and on and on, it's fulfilled in your presence right here today, right here, right now. This is what I'm about. And so through this series, we've been looking at each one of these phrases that Jesus talks about. And the one we want to look at particularly today for just a few moments is freedom for the prisoner. Jesus says, I come bearing the good news of freedom for the prisoner. What does he mean by that? What does Jesus mean when he says he wants to set prisoners free? 
I'll give you a statistic. Uh, the most recent statistics that the U.S. Bureau of Justice is able to compile and offer for us tell us that roughly 2.4 million people right now, as we sit here today in the United States, 2.4 million people are behind bars. No doubt many of them are there because of different crimes they've committed. Some of them are there because of injustices that have been served against them. But as we sit here, 2.4 million people are in prison today. You know who some of them are? The ones that John talked about earlier. The one that Dave uh, will serve every week in worship. Some of their friends, some of our Summit family who are behind bars at 33rd Street. You may wonder, you may have heard Dave talk about it or it's been talked about, why do we put such an emphasis on serving people behind bars? Why are they part of our church there as well? And that's a fair question. We put a lot of man hours to it, put some resources to it. We need eight new volunteer men and I encourage you to be a part of that if you can. Why is that such a priority to us? Well, one of the things that drives us is what Jesus himself said in Matthew 25. In that chapter, Jesus is giving this list and examples of what does it look like to be one of my followers? What kind of attributes would mark the life of someone who identifies with me and I would say is one of my disciples? And one of the phrases Jesus says in there is, when I was in prison, you came and visited me. What's interesting about this is there is no record, biblical or historical, of Jesus ever really being arrested or put into prison, except for when he was crucified. He was never put into prison, though. And so what is he talking about? When I was in prison, you came and visited me. Well, it's a challenge for those to say, to the disciples, to say the people that we, because of crimes or injustices that they, injustices they faced, they've been set aside away from society. Even them, I identify with them. They matter to God too. And if you wanna be one of my followers, you need to do what you can to visit them as if you were visiting me. And I love what Jesus is doing here. He's adding value to every life. Everybody matters. He's identifying with the prisoner. Even the rest of society didn't want to identify with them. And so we as his followers want to identify with that part of our church as well. That's why it's so important, because everybody matters to God. So clearly in this passage, when he's talking about setting prisoners free, there's an element of social and judicial uh, aspects to this. But there's a lot of us that are not behind bars. And yet the scripture makes it clear that Jesus is actually talking about this not only from an incarcerated position, but from a human condition as well. In John chapter eight, Jesus says this, verse 34. He says, truly I tell you, everyone who sins, and the best we can tell that's hovering right around about 100% of people right now, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That word slave in other parts of the New Testament, the Greek original word, is actually translated prisoner. When we sin, all of us, I struggle, you struggle, I miss the mark, you miss the mark. When we sin, we are prisoners to sin. So Jesus is talking about the human condition here. Not just of some people who would be behind bars, but of all people who before God in our standing were held captive by sin. All of us to some extent are held captive. And then here's the good news. There's this clear message in scripture that God wants all of us, however, to experience freedom. That's the whole message of Jesus to come and set the prisoners free. Look what uh, it says in the New Testament, Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that God has set us free. Galatians 5.13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. 1 Peter 2.16, live as free people. There's a pattern there, isn't there? The heartbeat of God for justice to set you free, even from your captivity, is beginning to, uh, to emerge. And these verses, again, are not just for people who are behind locked doors today. They are for every one of us. It's the desire of God's heart for us to know what it really means to be free. 
Think of it this way. I mentioned there's roughly 2.4 million people today in the United States behind bars. They're being held captive, right? But how many people do you believe, while not physically incarcerated, are really experiencing some version of captivity themselves? I mean, every day in our humanity, so many are held by captivity in so many different ways. Let me just list a few here and see if you can relate either from previous experiences or maybe even right now what you're experiencing. Many are held captive by shame, others by fear. So many are held captive by hurts and betrayals, by personal defeats and failures. For many, they're held captive by pride, some by anger. I talked to a guy yesterday on the phone. I mean, he is so captured by anger and bitterness. He doesn't have a, he is such a prisoner. He doesn't even realize it. And so many find themselves in bitterness and uh, can't be set free from it. Superficiality holds us prisoner. Prejudice, indifference, aloneness, habits, and the list goes on and on. And whether you find yourself identifying with that right now, and I'm sure many of us do, or whether you've identified with it in previous experiences, I can tell you this, you are surrounded every day of your life by people who are held captive by this and so much more. Some of the most captive people on the planet are behind bars. They're not in prisons today. And yet, ironically enough, spend some time with them, some of the most free people on the planet are behind bars today. How can that be? Well, it's because there's a difference. There's a difference between what your status is or where you physically find yourself and what you experience, like on a soul level. Think about this. Part of our church this morning is in 33rd Street in the prison over there. And here's the thing. Even though they're behind bars, it doesn't mean they can't be free in their soul, in their humanity. And likewise, just because we can sit here in the comfort of coming and going as we please and experience freedom as citizens and freedom as people, it doesn't mean that some of us are experiencing freedom in our soul, freedom in our heart. Just because there's not constraints on you doesn't mean you don't know what it means to be captive. Then there's others who sometimes will say, well, let me tell you what freedom is. Freedom is being able to do whatever you want, anytime you want it. Nobody's cramping my style. I get to make all my choices for my life. That's what freedom's all about. Okay, let's play that logic out for a second. If that's what freedom is all about, then if you have a swimming pool, go home this afternoon after we're done, drain your swimming pool, stand on the edge, and do a swan dive right into it. Well, that's stupid, isn't it? That's ludicrous. But if you play out the logic of that's what freedom's all about, being able to do anything you want, that's its purpose, then go ahead and do that. But it wouldn't make any sense. Freedom has to be about much more than that, doesn't it? Because all you're gonna do is really hurt yourself and you're not gonna help anybody else in the process. Frederick Buechner said it this way, to obey his strongest appetites for drink, sex, power, revenge, or whatever leaves man the freedom of an animal to take what he wants whenever he wants it, but not the freedom of a man to be human. God has something so different planned for us than just to exercise our freedom because we can whenever we want to. No, freedom is more than just that. It's being free, get this, it's being free to be who God has designed you to be. There's a purpose to your freedom. Uh, if you were here at the beginning of the year, Zach Van Dyke was doing a series on the Good Samaritan. Over and over in that series, you remember him saying this? This is what you were built for. 
This is what you were built for. You are free because you can live out what you were built for. And just like Jesus, we were built to love others, to serve others, to make things right, to make things new as they should be. Galatians 5 tells us this. You, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh or your selfish desires. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another humbly in love. Verse 14, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. This is what you were built for. You've been set free to make things right, just as Jesus modeled for us. Let me give you a couple of things to note about captivity. When we think about people who are being held captive, there's two reasons that usually has led to this. First of all, they've done something wrong. There's a reason they've been held captive because they did a wrong, they missed the mark, and they deserve to be captive. The other reason that we often get held captive is because of an injustice, some kind of circumstance, whether it's man-made or the brokenness of our world, but something is holding us captive. And it's a wrong that's been done to you. It's, it's an unfair injustice in your life. Either you deserve it because of something you've done or it's an injustice that's created in your life. Here's a beautiful thing about the New Testament. It doesn't matter which one of those things are holding you captive today. Jesus doesn't differentiate between them. Whether you're being held captive because of something that you've missed the mark in and you've done wrong, he wants you to be forgiven and know freedom. Or if you're being held captive because of an injustice or a circumstance that is just holding you prisoner, he wants you to be free. And he's made a way to, for you to experience that regardless of which one you have experienced. When I was, um, a few weeks ago, I was in Israel. Um, I had a chance to take a tour of the Holy Land. And man, first time ever, amazing trip. And uh, just love it. I highly recommend it if you've never been able to do it. Got back, and of course, one of the first questions, especially friends at Herndon have been asking, oh man, what was your favorite thing? Tell me about it. That would take a long time to try to figure out the answer. There's just too many things that were just too amazing and, and life-changing, and it just opens the scriptures into a new way. It's, it was amazing. But I can tell you, the thing that gave me the most chills, the stuff that made the hair in my arms stand up. And I'll do that with the help of a couple of pictures here. On one of the days, we were uh, just outside the old walls of Jerusalem. And where we're standing here is on the ruins of the courtyard of Caiaphas's palace. Caiaphas was a high priest in the New Testament at the time of Jesus. This is where his palace was. Oh, you see the ruins all around. But you look at those stairs that kind of go up between the walls. Those are no ordinary stairs over 2,000-year-old limestone stairs that with absolute certainty, historians believe Jesus, after he had the Last Supper with his disciples, walked right down these stairs on the night he was betrayed um, and the night that he would be arrested and ultimately crucified. As he walked down, and again, we're here in Caiaphas's courtyard. Um, if you can go to the next picture, these stairs will continue right here in the foreground. That's the look in the other way. These stairs go right down into what's called the Kidron Valley, or sometimes referred to as the Valley of the Kings. It goes right down in there past the trees and kind of take a straight left. You go up in the middle there. See where those, there's some cars and vans. I don't know if you can see it out there. By the way, we're not 100% sure whether those cars were there at the time of Jesus. That may not be the case, but, um, but the topography hasn't changed. Jesus would have walked down these stairs right through where that road is, right through where those cars are, would have walked up towards, you can see the walls of old Jerusalem, the Dome of the Rock up there, um, up in the left. He would have walked right in front around the outside bend. And then you see the trees right in the middle on the top, kind of a darker green. That set of trees is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. I had a chance to visit that a couple days after these pictures were taken. The Garden of Gethsemane, 
where Jesus just prayed fervently for this cup to pass over him. He knew the crucifixion was coming. He knew that he was gonna give his life and it just weighed down on his soul and he prayed, but he was willing to follow the father obediently. Um, this is where Judas would kiss him on the cheek and betray him. This is where the soldiers would come and grab him and arrest him, ultimately leading to his crucifixion. Immediately after his arrest, you know what happens? They walk right back the same path that they just came. They come back around the front of the city walls that were there at the time, walk through that valley there where the cars are, come right back up these very steps. I mentioned we're taking the picture right here from the courtyard of Caiaphas's palace. It was Caiaphas's palace where Jesus was condemned for claiming to be the Messiah, for claiming to be the Son of God, and he would ultimately be held in prison there, and then he would ultimately be crucified shortly thereafter. But there's something significant about the courtyard as well. Remember the Last Supper, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he tells them, you are all gonna deny me before the crucifixion takes place. You're gonna pretend you didn't even know me. And Peter stands up and says, uh-uh, I'm with you to the end no matter what it costs. And Jesus' response is this, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. You know the story if you've heard it. Well, the scripture tells us that Peter does indeed deny Jesus three times. I mean, just vehemently. Even profanity is laced in it in some of the translation it talks about. He, has, he doesn't want to have any identity with who Jesus is. And you know where he's doing that? He's standing right in the courtyard of Caiaphas's palace when he does that. And immediately after he does, we're told that a rooster crows, reminding him, it's a voice of the rooster to remind him of his failure. And he goes away in bitter tears. And here's the thing that was really amazing, and besides all of it, right from where we're standing, our tour guide, amazing tour guide, is telling us all about this. I'm kind of clicking pictures. He's talking about the rooster crowing, and I'm not making this up. Right as he says that, from down in the Kidron Valley, <laughs> I'm not kidding. Hair and not arms to stand up. I was like, wow. 2,000 years later, and to kind of experience what Peter would have felt in that moment. And I walked away from that and just kind of, you know, hung on to that. And I started thinking about the role of the rooster, the voice of the rooster is to remind Peter of his failure. That's the only purpose. I thought about today. Every day we're failing, just like Peter did. We fail. We reject Jesus. We miss the mark, whatever it is. We fail. And do you know, you know good and well, of course you do. There's voices all around you that want to remind you of your failure. Sometimes there's voices in you that want to remind you of the things that are being uh, in your life that have been holding you captive. All the voices want to remind you where you've missed the mark, but I want to encourage you, listen to that one voice who in this passage says, I have come with good news. Listen to, the, listen to this voice. I've come with, with good news that you have been set free. I've come to set the prisoners free. Whatever it is that's held you captive, whatever it is that you feel like you're in constraints, I've come to set the prisoners free. And when we do that, when we experience true freedom found only in Jesus, when we know what it's like to have been held captive by things and to just trust and give it over to him and experience true freedom, well, our ultimate result is to know nothing short of joy, outlandish joy. Speaking of joy, can I talk for a moment about my daughter um, just as we close? You saw the picture of her earlier, our 16-year-old daughter, Lauren. God gave us this amazing blessing of, of having our daughter 16 years ago, but it was about 14 months after she was born that we started realizing she was having some interesting health complications and began to realize it was seizures. Uh, within months of doctor visits, they were able to confirm, yeah, she has epilepsy. It just total surprise to us. Uh, nobody on either side of our family 
they said something in her brain should have turned right and it turned left, and there was just some kind of a cortical dysplasia, is the t- medical term for it, that just uh, it, it didn't heal right in there. And as a result, good cells make good cells and bad cells make bad cells, and uh, seizures began to burst. And if, if you're familiar with epilepsy at all, it's a, it's a, there's a long continuum. Sometimes somebody who has epilepsy, and if you've dealt with that or have a family member or, or friend, sometimes just a small dose of medicine can totally control it, and you can go on and live a perfectly normal life. The other end of the spectrum, sometimes seizures can get so bad and epilepsy can be so severe that it can be significantly dehabilitating in a person's life. Lauren, where does she fit in this? She's like this anomaly in the middle. Lauren has been on so many different medicines. When she was four and then when she was five, she had had brain surgeries trying to repair these seizures, but nothing ever worked. It might work for three or four weeks, but then it would come back with a vengeance, even worse than it was before. I can't tell you how many nights Lauren has spent in the hospital with sleep studies and exams and tests, all trying to figure this out. She's this anomaly where she really should be on this end of the spectrum because of the seizures she's had, grand mal seizures, not just the petty mal ones, but the full-blown grand mal type seizures. She should be over here, but God has protected her over and over. And yet, we started recognizing a few years ago that there was some cognitive and physical development that was starting to regress, and it made some new concerns. We have been doing testing and um, and monitoring, and again, no way to measure the number of days she's been in the hospital. They would say, Mr. and Mrs. Bell, do you realize last night your daughter had actually over 200 seizures, just to give you the scope of what we're talking about. She'd wake up in the middle of the night uh, with a seizure, cry herself back to sleep, wake up with another seizure, cry herself back to sleep. This would happen about every three or four minutes for hours, and there was just nothing we could do to control it, and it doesn't stay static. Eventually, we're gonna end up over here. So in January of 2013, just a little over four years ago now, we moved here from the Northwest. Um, about five years ago, we moved here from the Northwest and knew we needed to get care for Lauren. And so we uh, made acquaintance with some doctors at Florida Hospital. I don't know if you realize this, but Florida Hospital has one of the premier pediatric neurology centers in the nation. That's amazing. Um, the number one rated pediatric neurosurgeon, one of the top rated pediatric neurologists. It, just a gift to be able to have them care for our daughter. And so in January of 2013, four years ago, she had about a 10-day stay there where we did all the tests again, and they said, we're figuring out what's going on, and we have some sobering news, and we need to make a decision here that's going to be a radical thing in order to really help Lauren. The sobering news, or the encouraging side of it, was this. All the seizures that Lauren was having were contained to the side of the brain, the unfortunate, which is good news because they can still do something about it. The unfortunate or the sobering side was if we don't do something radical, they're going to start leaping to the other side of the of brain, and some of the regression you're seeing, it's just going to start taking off. And their prediction was that Lauren would be completely wheelchair-bound within about 18 months, and her cognitive and physical stuff would just go off the other end over here and maybe worse. So we needed to do something radical. Well, what is that? What do we have to do? Um, it's called a hemispherectomy. And if you don't know what that term is, on January 18 of 2013, they took our daughter back in and they performed a 16-hour surgery on her. A hemispherectomy is where they detach one half of the brain to completely uh, unable to communicate with any other part of the body so that the seizures couldn't keep communicating and have her go full-blown into that. Completely detached. Most of that side of her brain has been removed. There's a portion that's remained, but it's not connected or able to communicate in any way. Longest surgery, at least at that time, may still be true, but at least at that time, longest surgery that's ever been done at Florida Hospital. And we went into this. I, I, I know I'm moving quickly through this story for time's sake. We can't, I can't tell you the emotion 
and the pain and the captivity that all of us were feeling as we were entering that day and that, the length of that day uh, was incredible. But we went in with hope that what had been holding Lauren captive would finally stop. And four years later now, what's amazing to be able to tell you, part of the miracle of Lauren's story is she is completely seizure-free. She hasn't had a seizure since surgery. She's not had to have medicine in almost four years after having medicines, multiple medicines every day of her life. And she's completely free of all the seizures. And we just celebrate what God's done. Uh, thank you. Now, you don't, you don't go through 12-plus years of seizures without having residual effects. You don't go through a 16-hour surgery without there being some, some cost to it. So Lauren's over here, and as you get to know her, um, you'll see some of those effects. You'll recognize some of the things that are different limitations for her that she deals with. But the miracle, part of the miracle of Lauren's life is the uh, seizure-free side. You know that the bigger miracle of her life is? The joy that she lives with. I'm telling you, when we drive up I-4 by Florida Hospital over there, the big tall towers, she was in that tower having that surgery. Every time we, we drive by there, she points at that and says, that's the hospital that God used to change my life. Every time we talk about January 18 of 2013, you know what she calls it? The best day of her life. I mean, a day that seemed like it would never end, a day that she literally went through hell on earth. She calls it the greatest day of her life. You get time to spend time with her, and I promise you put your feet on every inch of planet Earth, you will not find someone who has more joy than this girl. That, to me, is the biggest miracle of her life, in spite of all that she's gone through, in spite of all the challenges she still faces because of the residual effects. And you know why she has that joy? Because Lauren knew fully what it meant to be held captive. She knew fully what it meant to be a prisoner. But now she knows fully what it means to be free. And it just results in outlandish joy in our life. Every one of us ache to be free. I don't know what the circumstances maybe that holds you captive today. I don't see anybody behind bars here today, but I'm, I'm convinced that many of you today, whether it's something physical, whether it's something circumstantial, relational, financial, whatever it is, something of the past or something you're dealing with right now, many of us are held captive and we ache to be free. And the good news of the scripture today, the good news that Jesus spoke himself was when he stood up in front of his friends in this little setting and he tells them, I have been anointed, I bear good news, and here's what it is. I've come to set the prisoners free. Wouldn't it be amazing if in our own lives we could experience freedom fully, no matter what our circumstances are, even in the middle of those circumstances, even if they don't change, we could still be free and experience freedom in those? In Romans, it says this, Romans 5, chapter, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. You know what that word justified means? Sometimes Christians say that word means just as if I never did it. And that's kind of a good uh, interpretation of it. But justify, this big theological word, it really means you have been declared made right. You have been declared made right. The God who wants to take things who, that have been wrong, you have been declared made right. The God who wants to take things that have been broken, you have been declared made whole. The God who wants to take things that have been blemished and flawed, you are declared made new. I have come to set the captives the prisoners free. And Jesus would later say in the Gospels that if the Son, speaking of himself, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Can I invite you to pray with me?
just, I know I can't even begin to put the words together um, to fairly represent uh, just how strongly and how wildly your heart beats for your people to know freedom. You, you ache for it for us. You ache for us to be free of the, the weights and the chains and the sins and the bondage and the past and the present that just weighs us down. I, I can't put it fully into words today. So I just pray that what you have done would speak that into our hearts. Not only did Jesus say this in this passage, but he went on and paid the price that would make the way that we could experience true freedom. I pray that whatever is holding each of us captive today, whether it's something that we are in deep need of forgiveness for, whether it's injustice that we have faced, whether it's something today or something from our past, whatever the voices are yelling at us and telling us that we've missed the mark, I pray that we would hear your voice alone and that we would relish in and rest in the freedom that comes from walking in your words and your ways. I pray this in the name of Jesus who made this all possible. Amen.